I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Insights Podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. I'm delighted to be joined today by Jacqueline Novogratz, the founder and CEO of Acumen, an impact investment fund that has partnered to build more than 100 social enterprises to bring basic services like affordable education, healthcare, clean water, and so on to about 300 million people across multiple continents. She's the author of a new book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices for Building a Better World. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Martin. Let's start off with the title of the book. What do you mean by moral revolution and why do we need one now? Why did you write this book now? Well, interestingly, I wrote it before the pandemic when it was already becoming clear that our current institutions, in many cases, have run their course. We know that they're not working, but we've yet to reimagine with what to replace them. And if the last 50 years gave us a template that put profit at the center of, and the individual at the center of most of our institutions, what's needed in this next chapter is to put our shared humanity and the sustainability of the earth at the center. How we build that requires all of our institutions to change. And that in and of itself is the moral revolution, if you will. That's a very old fashioned word and not a very business-like word, moral. Tell us about the word moral. So it is an old fashioned word, and I would say quite deliberately. However, it is decidedly not a set of prescribed rules handed down from some higher authority, but rather it is a move from the I to the we, from the individual to the collective, um, move away from a world that can only win if we see others lose. And so I would say underlying it, Martin, is this idea that all human life and frankly, all life is interconnected. And we're seeing this in the sciences, we're seeing this in the spirituality, and it demands a new morality on which we build our systems. You write a lot about poverty, and that's a clearly an area of focus for you. What we're about to discuss, though, uh, it seems to me that it applies broadly to our other common challenges like climate change and species depletion and the like. Would you agree? Absolutely. When I started 35 years ago, I looked at poverty as uh, the absence of income. What I see poverty now is the absence of dignity. And that impacts all these different areas of our lives and has to be integrated in the way that we build our systems. You say that you draw inspiration from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the UN in 1948. And The UN, of course, since then has also articulated the SDGs, the 17 Goals for Planetary Challenges. You've written this book declaring the need for a moral manifesto. What's missing, do you think? What additional ingredient do we need beyond those two important documents? Well, in material terms, there's there's no mention of the environment, of the earth. And so we focused on human rights. 70 years ago, we didn't focus on on natural rights, on environmental rights. And it's thrilling to see a new generation that is insisting on the rights of rivers and certain mammals. And then secondly, what's really missing is this whole idea of the moral imagination. And just as we need a renewed declaration of human rights, I would say so do we need a, a renewed declaration of human responsibilities. And it strikes me that the UN Declaration of Human Rights and especially the Sustainable Development Goals are sort of institutional in nature. They're saying 
institutions should, and whereas your book seems to be more directed at the individual. Would that be fair? Well, in a way, I think this whole idea of moral revolution is that it will take all of us. And we have this age-old tension between systems and, and leaders. And what this moment calls for is the integration of that new morality that enables leaders to lead differently, to build a new kind of institution and a new kind of system. And so, yes and no. I think with me, it's never an either or. It's always a both and. Yes, indeed. That's one of the big ideas in your book. Your chapters, I think, are very convenient guides for the chapter titles or your imperatives or your key ideas, if you will. And I think they're quite interesting in their own right. So let me, let me read them out and then maybe we can double click on a couple of them. You propose that for this moral re revolution, we should just start, we should do something. We should redefine what we mean by success. We should cultivate moral imagination. We'll certainly return to that one. We should listen to unheard voices. That's an intriguing chapter. You are an ocean in a drop. We should talk about that one. Practicing courage, holding opposing views in tension, avoiding conformity, using the power of markets but not being seduced by them, partnering with humility and audacity, accompanying each other, telling stories which matter, and embracing a beautiful struggle. Given our limited time, let's just double click on a couple of those. So just starting, you have this very interesting phrase that you attribute to the, the Jesuits of living into purpose. In other words, you don't start off with a planned, totally clear purpose. You do things and your purpose emerges. Can you tell us about that? And also, I'm wondering whether that also applies to corporations. A lot of corporations nowadays are declaring a purpose. It's interesting that you started there. Well, so first, I wrote it because so many people, not just young people, frankly, it seemed to be people in their 20s, early 30s, and then it would skip to people in their 50s and 60s who would say, I really want to do something for the world, but I haven't figured out my purpose yet. And I would smile and say, you know, purpose doesn't come to people sitting at the starting blocks. We often don't know our purpose, but we, we live into it by just starting. If you see a problem, take a step toward that problem. Let the work teach you where the next step should be. And the more steps you take, the more you might find yourself coming home, both to purpose and to yourself. But then in the beginning of 2020, pre-pandemic, a number of Fortune 100 CEOs would say, we're trying to retrofit our purpose. And um, I always found that mildly puzzling. And um, when I think about it, yes, it does resonate with me that for a corporation to map its assets, map its culture, and certainly map its aspirations, because we have a new generation that is demanding a greater truthfulness, a greater authenticity in terms of living purpose and sustainability. What are the steps incrementally that you can take toward that in a way, Martin, let action drive toward both a greater manifestation and a, and a, de and a greater declaration of purpose? What doesn't work is a marketing strategy that creates purpose and that hopes that the action will follow. Yeah, I think it was quite a disruptive idea because corporations may imagine that the purpose should be clear and immutable. But you're saying the authenticity and the meaning lies in learning and evolving towards a purpose. So that's a, that's a very profound idea, I think. Let's take number two, which is redefining success. So I think success in business used to mean 
maximizing returns to shareholders. And I think it's all, that's already quite an old-fashioned idea. It's you know, doing that and looking after the interests of uh, a broader set of stakeholders. But what do you mean by redefining success? I think that it is connected to maximizing shareholder returns. For too long, we put money, power, and fame at the center of our lives and the center of our definitions of success. And as someone who graduated from business school in 1991, right at the beginning, um, I think about who is lifted as our most successful graduates. And it's typically our wealthiest, our most materially successful. And the shift that's required is to really look at the amount of human energy our actions release in the world. And again, those who are building those institutions that put our shared humanity at the center. And that's not just for our business schools. That's for our parents. That's for our elementary schools. That's for all of our institutions. That's a really, a very radical shift. Number three is, I think, probably the one that requires most explanation is very central to your book, which is the idea that we need to cultivate moral imagination. What is moral imagination? Why is it important? And what can you do to cultivate it? So it's interesting that you work in the area of imagination and its connection to strategy. I have found, particularly when you're working with people who are unlike us, and and that includes low-income people, that too many of us use the lens only of our own imagination to devise strategy and try to solve problems in frontier markets, in the emerging markets. Moral imagination insists on empathy, putting yourself in another person's shoes. But if you stop at empathy, you actually reinforce the status quo. It's too close to sympathy. Moral imagination requires putting yourself in their shoes, understanding their perspective, and then analyzing the systems that keep people back, but also having the honesty to recognize where they hold themselves back. From there, it requires moving into a more muscular action. So I see it almost as an active verb, Martin, even though it's clearly a poetic phrase, moral imagination, because that goes to this tension of humility. You've got to recognize the world as it is, see where it needs to be, and then build a plan to get us there. And I can give just a few examples of where the lack of moral imagination has got us into the soup that we're in and where moral imagination could do so much more to create more inclusive supply chains and infuse all of our institutions with um, a better game plan for how we actually create inclusivity rather than pay lip service to it. It's interesting, the, uh, your definition of moral imagination there, because I think most people would define imagination as counterfactual thinking, thinking about things that could be the case that are not the case. But you're adding empathy to that mix. You know, you're saying also from the perspective of another. That's interesting because those are actually the two things that machine learning can't do. So as we embrace the technology revolution, many routine cognitive activities will be taken over by artificial intelligence, but empathy will not be one of them. And counterfactual thinking, thinking about things for which there is no data because they don't yet exist is another. So in a sense, maybe you didn't intend this, but you're, in a way, defining the domain where humans will probably focus more as routine activities are overtaken by AI. I'm not sure whether that makes any sense. It actually just was um, groundbreaking for me because 
the way I would have described it from a narrative perspective is that when it comes to the poor, we have neither the, the nonprofit nor the for-profit sectors have seen them as customers. And so we have very little data on what people actually believe and want because so few people have ever asked them that question. Often those people who've been left out don't trust that you actually want to hear their answers. And so then the data that we do often get is not truthful data. And so building those skills of empathy, and I would add deep listening, learning how to ask the questions, which AI could help us with, is required if we're going to create those truly paradigm-changing solutions. So thank you for that. I guess you're touching on another one there, number 11, accompanying each other. The idea that what needs to be given is not what you think needs to be given, it's what the other person needs. And that may not be what you think. And you have to stand in their shoes and think from their perspective to understand that. Is, is that the idea of number 11, accompanying each other? It's part of the idea. It's also the recognition. And this actually came to me from the economist, Marcia Sen, about 20 years ago when I read his book, Development as Freedom, where he talks about access to markets not being enough. And I understood it intellectually. But having now built 150 companies around the world, what that taught us was that it's just not enough to give people access, that if they don't have the capability of actually using that access so that they can fully participate, you're only about a quarter of the way there. And that was true whether we were working with entrepreneurs who might not have had the full set of skills that some of the entrepreneurs who've had very privileged lives have. They might not have the networks. They might not have the language of investment. And when I started Acumen, we looked much more like a traditional investor and we had post, a post-investment team and a post-investment approach. At some point, I realized that that was enabling us to be more transactional and focus more on monitoring rather than actually accompanying. And by that, I mean seeing the entrepreneur's problem as our problem and working with them to build the muscles so that they could actually solve that problem rather than solving it for them. So that over time, as they were building companies, and in some cases, these companies have brought you know, solar light or chickens to 50 or 100 million individuals, that by the end of it, they didn't need us. They had the capability. They had built the teams. But it was a much more costly and long-term experience than I had understood that it would be at the beginning from a societal perspective, if not from a short-term financial perspective, the payoff is extraordinary. Let's do one more of your imperatives, telling stories that matter, the power of narrative. Can you tell us about that one? Because I think that could be broadly applicable well beyond social responsibility. It seems to me to be a sort of a universal capability of leadership. Tell us about the telling stories that matter. Yeah, and and especially in a time of fear, so often our leaders move from that place of fear and tell stories in ways that create other, that shame or demean, whether it's deliberate or not. And the stories that matter are those stories that elevate, that find those customers, those voices unheard and make them more visible so that they can actually participate in the larger story. Stories that matter might be the stories of the 90% of smallholder farmers in the 
chocolate or cacao business who make under $2 a day, despite the fact that chocolate itself is a $100 billion industry, that these farmers are 57 years old, and that if we don't find a new economic model that keeps the farmers whole, we're not going to have farmers that are growing and harvesting our cacao. And just moving from that place of fear isn't enough. Showing the kind of quality that can be produced, the kind of intelligence that those farmers have in their voices can allow for much more inclusive, frankly, joyful supply chains that increasingly buyers want to be a part of, consumers definitely want to be a part of, and employees are proud of being a part of. And so there's a huge opportunity. Again, it can't just be the story. It's got to be upheld by the data and by the action. The narrative is so critical, not only to tell us about who we are, but who we collectively can be. So sometimes it's claimed that we do well by doing good, that they are identical. And you know that seems to me to be preposterous because sometimes there are trade-offs. I can have jam today, I can have jam tomorrow. They're not the same thing. I can invest in my context or I can invest in my company. They're, they're not the same thing. You suggest that both and rather than either or thinking is an important part of uh, creating impact. And of course, that boils down to the art of breaking or calibrating trade-offs. Can you tell us something about how you think about that from your experience? Well, first of all, God bless you, Martin, for saying that. Um, yes, if you're invested in Tesla, doing well by doing good is perfectly understood. When you are building markets in places that markets have never functioned, as was the case in solar energy for low-income people, when you had a situation where 1.5 billion people depended on dirty, expensive, dangerous kerosene, and you had to build a company for people who had no income, they made 2 $3 a day, they had no trust, they had no infrastructure, they had no financing mechanisms, they had a lot of bureaucracy, corruption, and complacency around them. There's a trade-off financially in the short term. The second and the third disclaimers or qualifiers are quite important because long-term, and I'm not talking five, 10 years long-term, I'm talking 20, 30 years long-term. Long-term, it's possible to build markets that increasingly provide real opportunity for all stakeholders. Short-term, someone has to absorb the costs of doing the disruptive work and of actually creating the market. And that, I believe, is the role of patient capital, which Acumen brought in 20 years ago, where we use philanthropy. And rather than give it away, invest for 10 to 15 years in entrepreneurs like D-Light, this solar company, which was the first of its kind, accompany those entrepreneurs with significant uh, support, including access to our networks, to corporations who would offer their supply chains so that they could not only reach 100 million individuals, but help create an energy revolution and an ecosystem that is still forming, but now represents over 400,000 jobs, has really moved the needle and has changed the entire conversation. And I would dare say aspiration across Africa, certainly for low-income people. We still have a long way to go. 700 million people have no access to electricity in Africa. But now we know how to solve it with the right kind of capital, the right kind of character, 
And what's needed is the moral imagination to do that next work because it will be a lot harder than the first and the will. So that connects to something else I wanted to ask you. What is the difference between patient capital and long-time horizon institutional capital? But I think you probably just answered that. So patient capital breaks compromises, breaks trade-offs by transforming situations, by investing in the things that are not economic propositions in the short term. Is, is it something like that? Or how would you define patient capital? Patient capital is first and foremost about market disruption in those places where both government and markets have failed the poor. It grew into impact investing. There was no term when I started Acumen called impact investing. Where impact investing is today is almost a catch-all. And while that allows for great creativity, it can also add to obfuscation, if you will. And so what worries me is when impact investing is used for just mediocre investing in the name of doing some good. And equally worrying is when impact investing is almost a greenwash for investing as usual. Patient capital investing is almost pre all of that, which is where there is a problem that hasn't been solved in healthcare, in education, in energy or agriculture for the poor. And it is willing to take the risk, accompany the entrepreneur, work to build the different parts of an ecosystem in formation so that the impact investors will have entities that are more commercially viable in which they can invest. Links back to the word imagination, probably. Uh, it sounds like you're describing uh, counterfactual investing, if I can coin a word, which is investing in things that will be functional, but are not currently functional, as opposed to investing in patiently in things that are viable, but the payoff is long-term, which is a a lesser level of challenge, it seems to me. Yeah. The way I would have said it, Martin, is essentially to dive into the dysfunction, and there's plenty of that in low-income communities, to build greater functionality. When I first started 20 years ago, I didn't understand that the poor don't live in market economies, the poor live in political economies. And by that, I mean that everybody has their hands in the the outcomes of the status quo, not just government officials, but uh, families, nonprofits, the local mafias, which are the more extortionary businesses that take advantage of people's lack of access, and certainly religious leaders as well. And so going into that mess that has a level of complacency about the way that things are, that people have no electricity, that the water as either dirty in the rural areas or extortionarily priced in the urban areas and refuses to accept that and tries to understand how to build a business model that will allow low-income people to essentially solve problems for themselves and have a greater sense of agency and therefore dignity. And that's what's needed. It's messy work. It's long-term work. And it breaks through, again, the complacency of just a private sector approach or a charity approach and focuses instead on the problem to be solved and has the wherewithal. And I'd I'd say the confidence and importantly, the skills, the competence uh, to solve the problem. So final question, Jacqueline, because our time is nearly up. I think um, a typical leader listening to this podcast may think, I have my social purpose. I have good intentions. We have our social initiatives. 
we have our planetary impact, our sustainability report. We've made our 2050 carbon neutrality pledge. What's my next move to unlock the things that we're talking about today, to unlock the individual level of moral imagination to amplify our impact in the world? Martin, I would say, having worked now with a number of corporations, either in trying to build inclusive supply chains with them or looking at different elements of their own sustainability, there's a crying out in employees across the organization to have greater purpose in their own lives. Many of them still feel that they're unable even to use the language of moral leadership. I gave a speech recently, Martin, and to about 800 C-suite officers, both in, in talent and in finance. And I talked about human dignity and some brave soul raised her hand and said, I love what you're saying, but I would never use the word dignity inside my corporation. And I said, really? I said, well, how about love? And everybody laughed. And I said, well, how about morality? And everybody laughed. We all are yearning for a world that is different from the world we are in. This pandemic has cracked open all of our systems, our health system, our education system, our criminal justice system, certainly our political system, and it has exposed their wounds. The business community has never had a moment like now, not in my lifetime, to be leaders of the solutions. The challenge is that the big problems in front of us are not typical business problems. They're social problems. They're societal problems. And therefore, we have to invest in a way that we teach and train our employees to lead from a place of moral imagination and to give them not only the tools, but the permission to do that. And that, again, goes to the change that has to come from, from all of us. Well, thank you very much for stretching our moral uh, and intellectual imaginations today, Jacqueline. It's uh, been fascinating. Thank you. It's, it's just a, a privilege, and I look forward to continuing the conversation with you, Martin. So we've been in conversation with Jacqueline Novogratz about her new book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World. I'd recommend it as a, a really interesting read that complements a lot of the institutional work the corporations are doing around CSR and sustainability, looking at the individual and social dimensions and the art of the messy art, I would add, of uh, creating change in complex, sometimes dysfunctional social systems. So thank you again, Jacqueline. Thank you. Thank you.